Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What You're Reading. This episode will go alongside the blog post for November 25th. As always, in that post, I will link to all the books, the quotes, and everything else that I will be mentioning. You can find that entry on tbqsbookpalace.com. While you're at it, feel free to find me on social media as well. For Twitter, that is the underscore book underscore queen. I'm listed under the same name for my Goodreads. Instagram is Danielle underscore TBQ. And if Tumblr is your thing, you've got two options. My safe for work Tumblr is the-book-queen.tumblr.com, while my completely not safe for work, no seriously, I warned you, this is just porn here, Tumblr, is tbqafterdark.tumblr.com. Pick your social media poison and come join the fun. So did everyone survive their Thanksgiving and Black Friday if you went out to do that? I hope so. Mine wasn't too bad. We just stay at home, and um, so it's a very small gathering. But I'm also the one that's in charge of all the cooking and the cleanup, so that part is not so fun. I'm curious, though, what dish is either unique to your family or you think that your family does a kick-ass job at making. I want to know, so tell me about it. One dish that's very unique to my family, um, not just for Thanksgiving, but just for gatherings in general, is, and the name always puts people off, but we call it pink cheese. And it's really more like a fruit salad. It has cottage cheese, hence the cheese part of that name. Cool Whip, you put a jello packet in for the flavoring. That's also what gives it the color. So we usually use like a cherry or strawberry. Really, you can use any flavor, but that's usually what we've used. And then you put fruit, whatever fruit you want. Usually I use a mixture of peaches and mandarin oranges. And then you use mini marshmallows, the flavored kind, like the orange and lemon and lime, whatever that package. You use those and you mix it all together. And ideally you want it to sit at least overnight in the fridge and it is so good but the name always throws people and I don't know why the name was came up with it was one of my great aunt's recipes and it was always known as Linda's pink cheese so that's just that's what we stuck with but you know now that Thanksgiving is over that means that Christmas is just over there and I'm in denial about that because I am so not prepared. I hope that your holiday, if you celebrate Thanksgiving, was a good one. And uh, like I said, let me know, even if you don't celebrate Thanksgiving, let me know one family holiday type dish that is unique or extra good for your family and, you know, let us all know what it is. So let's move on to the Romance Landia chats, shall we? Do you want to know how Romance Landia's week started off? By getting shit on, again, by a popular liberal feminist who basically started blaming romance novels for today's rape culture and the fact that we have a fucking molester in the White House. It's our fault for that. I, I wish I was joking, but I'm not. That is truly what she was saying on Twitter. And of course, the entire romance community came for her blood, which only led to her spouting off even more bullshit. And guys, I, I can't even. There was so much stupid bullshit coming from Propane Jane is what she is listed as and some of her followers as well that I just, I had to step away. I had to step away to try and control my own blood pressure. Of course, I did quite a few subtweets, but I couldn't keep looking through all of the tweets and all the responses because there was just so much bullshit going on there. What she was saying just reeked of, well, you guys read this garbage, so you were kind of asking for it and I cannot 
oh god oh and also according to her because we are women we're supposed to step forward and hold each man's hand that we come across and teach them how to be a good guy and how to not follow toxic masculinity and rape culture and that by us reading romance novels we're not doing that so again we're to blame for our current societal situation here i i don't even know where to start with all of that other than to say fuck that and fuck her thanks to patriarchy we're already told from day fucking one that it is our job as women to carry the weight of a relationship the emotional weight and otherwise in every relationship or interaction that we are involved in. That it is our job to step in and diffuse the tension and coddle the men to get them to calm down and learn and all that shit. Like, it's not our fucking job. And understanding that is like feminism 101. It is not our job to continue to do that despite what we've been told. Yet here we have a so-called feminist suddenly telling us that it is our job to do that and therefore it's our fault for failing at it and letting today's rape culture get so out of control. That's all on us because we dare to read dirty books. Oh, I'm sorry, she actually called it women's sex literature. Okay then, I suppose we are now reading women's sex literature. Or actually another name was coined for it of literature. This entire thing is just, once again, proof of what I've been talking about for, what, the last couple weeks in a row about how women internalize misogyny so much and spout off these things. I mean, look, we get shit on by everyone outside of the community. Doesn't matter their gender. But it is when it comes from other women that it's usually the most... <sighs> I don't know. It's just, that's usually when it's the worst, right? That's where we get the worst hate from, I believe, is truly from other women. So it's truly, it's nothing new. It's not new that we're being shit on by someone, and it's not new that it's from an, another woman. None of that is new to anyone who has been reading romance for any length of time. But it is exhausting to have this constantly happen. It is exhausting. But you know what I loved about all of this? I loved seeing everyone in the community come together and drag her ass and stand up for the genre. Look, I cannot stress it enough. Our genre and our community is not perfect. It never has been. It never will be. It's never claimed to be. And honestly, that's fine. It's naive to think that any genre or community is perfect. And that applies to ours as well. But we can be imperfect without being shit on all the time by outsiders who have only ever scammed the Sparks notes for dummies on the most problematic and often very old parts of the genre. We don't have to be a perfect genre, a perfect community, in order to be respected and listened to by others. So keep pushing back. Keep correcting those idiots when they say these things. It's fucking exhausting to do so. I know. I know. But we're not going to just quietly sit in the corner with our lady porn and be good little women who are seen but not heard. That's not, that's not us. That's not what we need to do. They should learn one of these days that if you come for the romance community, you better be prepared to have your ass whipped from a hundred different directions. Every damn time. Come on, fight us. I dare you. It won't end well for you. See, nearly a week later, and I'm still too fucking pissed off to discuss this clearly. I'll just leave links to not only her original tweet and some of the subsequent ones that she posted once Romance Landia came for her ass, but I'll also link to some great responses from others, readers, and authors in the community. Although, you know what, you may not even be able to see her tweets anymore because that same day she started mass blocking romance tweeters, including myself, so I can't see anything that that bitch went off on, but I know she kept going. And this won't surprise any of you, but her claim on why romance is so horrible revolved around two things. Any guesses? Bodice rippers from the 70s and 80s and Fifty Shades of Grey. I cannot say it 
enough times apparently and i'm not the only one neither fifty shades nor bodice rippers explain the romance genre and if that's all you have to use in your defense a weak defense really damn weak um you're hella wrong so wrong they're both part of our genre's history no denying that they did both good and bad things for the genre and the community there's no denying that but that is not what romance is and more importantly when you know nothing about the genre nothing about its history nothing about the books and you are just an outsider who is pointing in and saying that that is your problem that is what the romance community is that is what a romance novel is is that problematic shit there and there you're wrong and if you would just take the time to do the basic research if you would take the time to talk to nearly anyone in the community we would explain to you just how wrong you are but they don't want to listen to us in fact when we try to do that like many amazing authors and readers were doing here with propane jane and trying to explain the genre to her her and her followers didn't want to listen and in fact they tried to tell them to sit down shut up and listen to them explain to us what our genre is because apparently we're too stupid to know what our own genre is i repeat we do not have to sit down and shut up for anyone we deserve to be listened to and respected just like any other community just like any other reader just like any other person but we're not because fuck you patriarchy fuck you misogyny and fuck you a million other things that is grouped together to ensure that we do not read about happy lives for women and sexual agency and sexual pleasure and power and freedom heaven forbid that we have access to any of that so instead they continue to treat us and our genre like shit and i'm tired i'm so tired of it but it's just the same shit a different day and it repeats again and again and again and again maybe one day it'll change moving on to the blog recap for the week first jen reviewed alicia rye's wrong to need you which releases on tuesday she gave it five stars making it a royal pick for november she sums up her thoughts on this book quite nicely with do yourself a favor read this perfect book i completely agree with her there next jen's who did it better on thanksgiving went live five holiday romances mf mm and ff go head to head which one ends up on top come find out bonus all of the books are under four dollars and jen enjoyed them all and finally pat reviewed dawn's early light by jessica scott which came out earlier this month she gave this one four stars and says that once again scott brings the characters the stories and the honest emotions to life i do enjoy jessica scott's stories so i need to read this one this is one of those that was done with the what do they call it bookshot flames the one that's done with james patterson i could go off on a whole rant about that which i did on twitter a few weeks ago maybe i'll link to that one because otherwise this is going to go way off topic on this podcast but i have thoughts about that whole line nothing against the authors that do it but i have thoughts on the actual publishing line itself so there are also the usual posts up this week, lusting for covers on Sunday, new releases on Tuesday, and daily book deals Monday through Saturday. I apologize in advance to your one-click finger while also encouraging you to go treat yourself to a new book, or ten. I won't tell. Next week, Pat has two more reviews to share with you, and our November giveaway will go up on Thursday. So be sure to check back if you want to win one of our top reads from November. As to my reading week, I managed to finish three books again. Not a bad week. However, none of those books really wowed me for one reason or another. They were all kind of okay, and some of them a little bit less than that. Without further ado, let's get into the book discussions. So first up was Duke of My Heart by Kelly Bowen, narrated by Ashford McNabb. I'm still trying to decide on my rating for this one. 
it's somewhere between three and a half and four stars. I keep kind of jumping back and forth between those. Our hero, Sam, is a duke and a ship captain. He was the third son and took off to sea to make his own life when he was quite young. That is, until something happened that took away his twin brothers and then his parents, leaving him as the only heir. For the record, I'm a bit unclear on all of that. Either it wasn't explained or I just missed it, which is always possible when listening to an audiobook and doing other things at the same time. So even after taking over the dukedom, he has stayed away from England and his responsibilities there, or his direct responsibilities. I mean, he has people taking care of the estate and all that sort of stuff, of course. But he's instead been spending a lot of his time in India and the like. So when this book opened, he unexpectedly returns home during a ball that's being held at one of his estates. He goes to find his sister, but instead finds a dead, naked earl tied to his sister's bed, and she's nowhere to be found. The heroine here, Ivory, is a widow, and she has a backstory, but that doesn't come out until later in the book, so I won't spoil it all for you. She works as a... I don't even know what to call her, and they don't ever really give her a name or a title in here. But she covers up, like, scandals for the ton, basically. Um, the hero's aunt hired her to take care of the dead Earl that they found. You know, redressing him, discreetly moving his body to another spot in the house, coming up with a story to tell about how he died or who saw him last or whatever, which she does with some help from Sam, and uh, no one suspects a thing. Now the two must find out what happened to Beatrice, his sister. Did she run away or was she taken? And what exactly happened to the naked Earl in her bed? As I said, I'm kind of torn on my rating for this one. On the one hand, I very much enjoyed it, and I have really nothing to complain about, which is a good thing. But on the other hand, I also don't have a lot to talk about that can help to show why I enjoyed it. The writing was nice, the story kept my interest, the narrator was good. No surprise there, since I've been listening to McNabb do many of the Maiden Lane books for a while. But beyond that very cookie-cutter list of how the book went for me, I don't have anything else to say about it. That's kind of why I was leaning more towards three and a half stars, but then, like I said, I don't have anything bad to say about it, so then I go, well, maybe it's four stars, and I'm stuck somewhere in between. I guess this is a 3.75. <laughs> if I'm having a hard time coming up with anything to say, I mean, surely that means that something must have been missing or was slightly off, right? Even if I can't pinpoint what it was? I just don't know. What I do know is I did enjoy this one a great deal, and I will be back for the rest of the series. As to the sex, because I know that's what you came here for, my fellow dirty readers, welcome. Their first encounter was a dry humping scene that ends with an orgasm for her, but just blue balls for him. That was his choice. He wanted to, you know, hold off and not do anything more that night. So they hold off on doing anything until later in the book because he didn't want to touch her until his sister was home safe and Ivy was no longer technically employed by him or rather his his estate or his family which I appreciated and I could totally understand that the dry humping scene did occur a day or two before the sister was found but whatever whatever they waited for the main course until after everything had settled back down so in their first full scene he starts to finger her, and after a minute or so, she pulls his hand away and tells him, no, I want you inside me when I come. And of course, he grants her that desire. Then a very short while later, during round two, 
because, you know, Romance Landia is magically infused with Viagra at all times, uh, he's once again fingering her, and she starts jacking him off until he stops her by putting his hand over hers, pulls her on top of him, holds her gaze, his hand is still there over hers, and returns her words to her by saying that he wants to be inside her when he comes. I mean, guys, I, those scenes might have truly killed me. I told you before... It's about those little details and moments, the words that are used in dialogue in a scene. That is what really gets to me. Not just cock, pussy, quick thrust, and cresting waves, we're done. Like, that doesn't do anything for me. But those little moments like that, that intimate moment of him having his hand over hers while he's positioning himself and he's holding her gaze while he says this to her, and I just, I died. I'm a puddle on the floor of swooningness, and I, yep. Yep, yep, yep. So the sex, while not erotica level by any means, and definitely not that many scenes either, was still really damn hot and well done. So that's a solid A from me for the sex here. So I almost started book two this week as well, because when I finished this one uh, and went to look through my library's audiobooks, the sequel was available at that point. But I've said before that I do like to space out when I'm reading a series or just an author in general. So I decided to pick a different book to listen to, and I'm going to come back to book two, though. Don't worry, I will be back to finish this series. And even though I may not have much to say about this book, I still recommend it. I truly do, especially if you can find it at your library, which is something I just believe in across the board, whether it was an awesome book or not. I mean, use your library. Use it. You'd be surprised what you'll find. I do believe this is Kelly's first book, or if not, then maybe it's one of her first books. I don't know. If that's the case, though, this is a pretty good debut. And either way, she's got my interest. Like I says, I will be back. After what felt like forever, okay, it was only five days, but same thing. I finished up Between You and Me by Jennifer Grayson, which releases on Tuesday the 28th. This one wasn't a bad book. It didn't make me rage, which is a high praise um, considering some of the recent books that I've been talking about. And yet I couldn't give it more than two stars. At first, I was trying to convince myself that it was three stars, but even though I didn't have anything to rant about, I don't have anything really good to say about it either. I don't have anything positive to add. So, two stars it is. Tess is the only daughter of a rich family, and besides her family's wealth, she's done quite well for herself, um, though I'm still not sure what exactly she does, other than it's some sort of corporate-type job in New York City. Beyond that, I'm still Still, I don't know. Anyway, she's in her late 30s. I believe it's 38 or 39 during the course of this book. And she has no potential husband or boyfriend in sight and yet a strong desire to have a child. So she decides to take matters into her own hands and go to a clinic and use a sperm donor. She doesn't want to tell her family about her plans yet, so she goes off to one of their mountain lodges in Aspen for a few months and goes to a clinic out there. Logan is a house manager or estate manager for her family's lodge, uh, along with other properties in the Aspen area. Basically, he makes sure to keep an eye on things during the majority of the year when the home is empty, and then he gets the house ready for him when someone plans a trip there. 
Logan is also in his late 30s. He's divorced, and because of how that relationship ended, he's sworn off relationships for life. He doesn't want a woman in his life, he doesn't want a family, nothing. However, his mother is really, really sick, and to try and make her happy, he decides that he needs a fake girlfriend. And he needs something, Tess needs something, you know they're going to decide to help each other out. So here's my biggest complaint about this book. The pacing was terribly off, and this book was slow. Sometimes mind-numbingly so, to be quite honest. When the entire plot of a book is based around she wants a baby, he needs a fake relationship, but they don't even start to discuss either of those things until nearly 60% into the book, yeah, your pacing is fucked up. I'm just saying. And even once the plot finally kicks off, it really doesn't go anywhere, and the pacing is still far too slow all the way to the very end. On top of that, I never really felt like I fully connected to these two. If I'm not feeling a connection to the couple, there's not much that can be done to save the book in any other way. And that's definitely the case here. The fact that I couldn't completely relate to them, or rather that I couldn't connect to them, that also affected just my enjoyment of the book, which is to say there wasn't a whole lot of it. I also never believed that Logan would go from, I don't want a family ever, to, sure, of course I'll be your sperm donor. Yes, their agreement is based upon Tessa's requirement that he sign over all his rights to the child, and she would be the one raising him, have full custody, all that. But still, I never understood why he would do something that's very much against what he's always wanted, what he keeps repeating that he wants out of life. It just didn't quite fit, other than the fact that, of course, for the sake of the story, he needs to be the sperm donor, but it didn't fit his character to agree to this. Also, his equally quick change at the end of the story to wanting to be part of the unborn baby's life and her life and all that, like, it also left me rolling my eyes because I didn't believe it. It just didn't fit his character and it didn't, there was nothing to build up to that to show why his change of heart, why his change of mind, so it, no. And if you were thinking, well, surely the sex helped to save this book, right? Oh, well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but no, it did not. Look, it's not horrible, but it's definitely lackluster, and it's extremely quick, and it definitely came across as what it primarily was, which is a means of getting her pregnant, not so much them lost in passion. And I can get that. I mean, if you couldn't tell, obviously, when they decide to do this agreement, um, they decide to go about the natural way to get the baby rather than using him as a true sperm donor and, you know, a turkey baster, <laughs> which is, I suppose, extra horrible to say that during Thanksgiving week. But there you go. There's that image for you. Happy Thanksgiving. Um, so anyway, they're going about it the natural way. And it just felt, I wasn't feeling the passion there, I guess. I just felt like it was literally a means of get in, thrust, come get out, leave her to let the cum sit inside of her. Which brings me to a very weird um, comment, I suppose, or question, kind of a little bit of both. She is told that the best way to ensure that, that she's going to get pregnant is after he comes inside of her, she's supposed to elevate her hips for a while before she goes and moves anywhere. Now, I remember in a lot of historicals where the heroine would do that if she wanted to get pregnant, um, where she would talk about raising up her hips to try and let his seed 
flow down to her womb or, you know, however they would word it in historical romances. But I always just kind of wrote that off as like a weird historical naive girl thing, um, or rather naive heroine. Is this, is this truly a thing? I mean, I'm not out here trying to get pregnant. So I'm, I admit that this is not something I've ever looked into seriously to research. I just wrote it off as a historical thing that's part of Romance Landia. But is this truly a thing? You tell me. We're all friends here. Is this a thing? If you want to get pregnant, you just, you elevate those hips and it just, it kind of caught me off guard and it was such a big thing with every sex scene here that she had to lift up those hips. And it was just kind of like, okay, I get the point. I got it. Thanks. And also while we're on the subject of sex, one scene that bothered me, it's after they first decide to be the, he decides to be the sperm donor and she's going to do their fake relationship for him, but it's before they actually start sleeping together. But this simple kiss they shared started to heat up really fast and they were both dying to take it further, but they don't because it wasn't her peak cycle time and she wanted to wait and not waste his sperm or whatever. I mean, I get it, but here's the thing that bothered me. It's the fact that this is all framed once again as being penis and vagina intercourse only is the only form of sex and... Like, I've talked about this before. That's a problem in society. That's a problem in Romance Landia that we have this single-minded focus on that's the only sex there is, and it's it's not. You know, it's treated like it's all or nothing. Like, they either could have sex or they couldn't, and there was no in-between. And I just, I would have loved to have seen that scene end in some sort of sex and orgasms. I mean, oral, fingers, hand jobs. the possibilities are endless. Even if she didn't want him to waste his cum inside her not-yet-fertile body or whatever. I don't know. I, I guess it's not a huge deal there. It's just mainly, it ties into the problem that we need to um, address and fix throughout the genre and then just throughout society that sex is not just penis and vagina and either you're pregnant or you're not from it. Like, oh, I don't know. Maybe it wouldn't bother anyone else, especially, I suppose, within the context of this plot where she's trying to get pregnant. So I guess, you know, fertility dates matter. But I just like, dude, you guys want to fuck? Go fuck. Even if you don't want his penis to enter your vagina, go fuck. I don't see a problem. There's one other thing. There's a lot of text communication in this book, which I usually enjoy, like text, emails, letters, stuff like that within a romance. Like, I'm here for it. I love getting that little glimpse into, you know, into how they're going to fall in love or how they communicate with each other. Like, that is fine. But the way that it was done here was annoying and confusing. Instead of having it clearly labeled, like, um, you know, having their entire communication via text put into a block quote or something within the page. No, no. It's written as if it was dialogue. So it would say, hey, do you want to come over tonight? She wrote. Sure, I'll be there after work, he responded. But there wasn't like dialogue quotes because it's text messages, but it's written as if it was dialogue. So then you can't tell what part is the text that is being sent and what part is the rest of the sentence. And it was just a hot mess. And I spent far too long trying to go back and figure out who was sending what message to whom. And I shouldn't be putting that much effort into reading their damn text messages in a book. I don't know if you would blame that more on the author or more on the editing department for this book, which I believe is from Kensington, isn't it? I didn't look. Anyway, whatever. It's a big publisher that did this one. No, that's not the way to do text messages in a book. Especially, it's not like this was once or twice. This is pages of this. Like, throughout the course of the entire book, this is pages of this type of thing going on. No, no, that just bothered me. So, you know, I loved Love in Dublin, which was my first time reading Jennifer Grayson just last month. But this one, this one fell flat for me. It dragged on forever and it never really had me invested in the characters or the story. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I was relieved to finally reach the end of it. I didn't even highlight any quotes while I was reading this one. And that speaks volumes considering I am such a shameless 
quote whore. So if you've not read Grayson before, honestly, I would not recommend picking this one up. I would go for Love in Dublin or perhaps check out some of her other books. I haven't read any others yet, but I'm still going to try more from her. It's not like this one ruined her for me. Um, you know, it's normal to have hits and misses from an author. Hell, it's human to have hits and misses from an author. So I'm, I'm not going to write her off just because this one didn't work for me because I did love the first one I tried from her. And hopefully I'll love a lot of the other ones that she does. Maybe not all of them because again, sometimes that happens. Oh, I almost forgot. All I Want for Christmas, which is another book from Jennifer Grayson, is currently free on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles and the like. I haven't read this one yet, but of course I had to grab it and I'd encourage you to do so as well because who can turn down a free book, especially a holiday book? Perfect timing, right? Finally, I finished up another audiobook, The Iron Duke by Mel Jean Brooke, narrated by Faye Adele. This one is a solid three stars for me. So Mina is a detective. Reese, aka the Iron Duke, is a bit of everything really. He's known and beloved for having saved the country from the Horde. He's a bit of a pirate and he also has his status and money and power, of course. So the two team up when a dead body is dropped onto his doorstep, and while they're trying to figure out who the man was and how he was killed and why he was left there, they also uncover a bigger plot that puts England in danger once again, and it's up to them to basically save the day. This is the first in a steampunk series that also has zombies in the background. Here's the thing. I liked it, and I wanted to know more about this world, but that's just it. I needed to know more about this world. I was very confused about a lot of things in the world, like who or what the Horde is exactly, and who has nano agents versus who doesn't, and just all those little things that actually make the world in a steampunk or a fantasy type world like this. I felt like I never got a good image of this world in my mind and was instead just walking around in it like half blind. It was kind of like I had been thrown out in the middle of the ocean with no way to reach land, no way to see the land, and I would get little bits of driftwood that would come past, but none of them were strong enough for me to really grab onto and make it back to shore. Does that metaphor makes sense. So land being an understanding of this world and me lost in the ocean with little bits of information that I could never really fully put together to understand the big picture. That was kind of my issue. And I'm not sure if it's from this being the first book in a series, which a lot of lot of first books have that problem where trying to balance between info dump and world building sometimes is not the greatest balance. And maybe that's what it is. Maybe that was causing my confusion just because this is book one. Then again, a lot of people really loved this even as the first book. So then I'm wondering if it's because I was listening to this on audio. And by that I mean, though I liked the narrator's voice and her performance, I found myself zoning out far too often while I was listening to this, and I don't know why. I cannot pinpoint why. It was nothing to do with the performance, and it was nothing to do with the story because I did like the story and I wanted to know more about this world, but the only thing I can figure is perhaps this is one of those books that is better read, the first time at least, rather than listening to it. I I'm not sure. I I'll still be continuing this series, but I think I'll try the next one in ebook and see if I'm able to stay with the story better that way, or if it was just the problem of this being the first book in a series. I don't know. I, I just felt like I was far too 
too lost and I, I had to keep going back to check and make sure I was listening to the first book in the series because so much was left unexplained to me that I was convinced that I must have accidentally picked up like book three or something and that's why nothing made sense. But no, I mean, this is book one. To my knowledge, there's no sort of prequel novella. If there is, my library doesn't have it. But I just felt like even for the first book in a series, I shouldn't be as lost as I was. But maybe it's me because I did go through different you know, readers that I follow on Goodreads who have read this as well, and I wasn't seeing that issue brought up. I wasn't seeing any of them confused by the world building. So I'm kind of looking around going, what did I miss that I'm the one that's so confused? I don't know. Like I said, I will be giving the rest of the series a shot, but I might try it just an ebook and see if that helps me any. So the romance itself wasn't perfect for me as far as kind of like the pacing of it um, developing and stuff like that, but it was still quite enjoyable. And I really liked these two characters and they did have some amazing chemistry together. The sex scenes are quite Quite hot. They come along much later in the book and we only get a few of them, but that's okay. I'm not complaining. They were quite hot. I loved them. I have to say though, I kept hoping that they would make use of the steampunk butterfly vibrator gadget, <laughs> um, but I get why Mina was uncomfortable with the idea of using it. I mean, really, who wants to use a sex toy that your mother created? That's awkward. I think this is an interesting world that has some good potential, and I do want to know more about it, which I can't stress enough, I do need to know more about it. And I'm going to have to try another book and see if things are cleared up with some of the world building and backstory explanation for it. Confusion aside though, I truly did enjoy this one, and I'm looking forward to visiting this world again. So as I'm recording this part, I'm just about finished with Alicia Rye's Wrong to Need You. I'll be talking about it briefly next week, but I don't think I'm going to spend too much time on it since Jen has already reviewed it, and I think a lot of what she covers in the review is what I would be telling you anyway. I will hit on some of my favorite parts, and you know I'll be talking about the sex and stuff like that, but it'll probably be a pretty quick chat about it next week. I am loving this one, though, which is not at all surprising because Alicia is basically a rock star, and all of her books are always amazing. So next, I think I'm going to start A Rancher's Heart by Vivian Arend, which came out last week. Um, yes, I am trying to catch up on old arcs. Yes, it is a lost cause. Yes, I'm still going to try to do it anyway. But this kicks off a new series from her, and I've really enjoyed a lot of her books, so I am looking forward to starting that. From what I understand, it is more of a very slow burn, which I have to be in the right mood for one of those because otherwise I get impatient that, you know, there's no fucking. But um, yeah, I, I think I'm going to end up liking this one, though. It sounds good, and, and I do like her writing, so whether or not there's sex for a while, I will make do. As to my audiobook, I'm listening to The Trouble with Mistletoe by Jill Chalvez, which is going to be a movie from Passion Flicks next month or this winter sometime, if I'm remembering correctly. I might get a membership, like at least for one month of it, and watch the movies, the couple movies that they've already got out. Have you joined the site? Have you watched any of the movies? If so, tell me your thoughts and experiences on it. What about you? What are you going to read this weekend? Or what did you recently finish up that you either loved or hated? Let me know. I want to hear all about the good and the bad of your reading life. I hope you enjoyed this week's What You're Reading chat. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful weekend and fall in love with some truly fantastic books. Until next time, enjoy TBQ.